Good morning. Good morning. So if you're visiting, my name is Peter, and I have the privilege of taking us into God's Word. I serve on the team of elders that leads the church, and today we're in The Gospel is for Everyone, studying the book of Romans. Now, real quick, I want to show you some pictures first of the team. We, I was part of 26 others from our church that went to Orlando, these beautiful people, and we experienced what God was doing elsewhere to reinvigorate what he's doing here. And what he's doing here is connected to what God is doing everywhere. And honestly, some of the leaders that have come out of our church and aren't even here with us still are blessing other churches in our region and other places of the world. And I want you to have as much of the joy from the stories and get around some of the people maybe Wednesday night if you join us for summer nights at the Springs. Uh, some of the other people that have gone there, I pray that you could have all the joy downloaded to you that we've experienced. That's even better than Mickey Mouse, amen? Which is what some of us endured in other parts of the week as well in Orlando. But getting to it, when we were gone last week, we had a homecoming preach from our very own Joshua Guerrero. And uh, man, we didn't miss a beat, did we? We opened up what I consider is the best chapter, the richest chapter in the Bible, Romans chapter 8. And today we're going to be in the second of four weeks in Romans 8. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet to honor God's word. We're going to start with verse 14. Romans 8, verses 14 through 23. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the, revela- for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies, the word of the Lord. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Jesus, please add a supernatural blessing to the reading of your word. Lord, you have always been faithful. And we have always been needy, whether we know it or not. And we just declare that that is a good combination where 
your faithfulness meets our neediness. We can see in a special way your goodness and mercy and power. And so as we dig into your word, Lord, change us. Prepare us for kingdom glory. For so much better than our dreams coming true, but your word being fulfilled in us. Amen. So here's what I want to do with this passage. I want to consider how these verses fit into the great meta-narrative of world history. I know that's a lot to, to chew on, but I want to consider this small part of Romans 8 in light of the rest of the Word of God and the story of the gospel. I want us to dig in and consider, therefore, what Romans 8 says about, number one, creation, number two, fall, three, redemption, and finally, restoration. So let's work through this one by one. First of all, what does this text say about creation? We were created to be children of God. That's how we were designed. We were created to cry out for our daddy. In the Bible here in verse 15, it says, Abba, Father. That means just daddy in Aramaic, the the Hebrew that Jesus spoke. We were created to understand that our creator is our provider, our nurturer. There's a relational, inextricable connection that we were designed to have with him, where we hear his voice, where we cry out to him. He hears us. And it wasn't just, as verse 15 says, a a spirit of adoption, but we were created and designed with a spirit of sonship, uh, that, that we cry out for him and he hears us because that's how it's always been. That's how it was supposed to be. Genesis 2-7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust. Salud. Formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature, or the human became a living creature. Now, this is really intimate. Anyone who thinks that God is a disconnected, out there God and kind of functional theistic mindset that, you know, God's just kind of out there and we're just kind of disconnected from him, that's not how it was designed to be. The very life that we have is God breathing into us. Now, the the word for breath or wind or air or spirit in Hebrew, it's all the same, ruah. So you could reread this and say, God breathed into man's nostrils the spirit of life. So I believe, in my opinion, and others believe this as well, other Christians, that this is the moment where Adam and Eve were indwelt with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God indwelt Adam and Eve here. We were made for a glorious freedom that can only come from an intimate spirit connection with God the Spirit, God the Father, and God the Son. This is what Adam had. This is what Eve possessed, enjoyed. They didn't have any doubt about their position before God the Father or their place in the world. 
There was no such thing. There was no paradigm for any sort of thing like doubt or fear. They were too busy with the glory and the adventure of filling the earth, the the command before them to fill the earth with God's glory and subject everything else, including serpents and fear and lies, to the dominion of the spreading adventure of knowing God and extending his spirit by multiplying. That's what we were made for. Bottom line, we were created for something way more than this. Maybe earth as we know it or the world as it is now. That's where we get to the fall. The next point, the fall. We have to ask the question, if if we were made for this freedom, then why is so much of the earth pretty much just what verse 21 calls bondage to corruption? Why does that seem to be pervading the earth? We were made to walk with God as his children. So why, why are we so insecure everywhere we go, full of fear? Why does life itself so often just feel like middle school? Just awkward, confused about who we are, not kind of right in our bodies. Our hormones are just kind of lying extra to us. Life itself feels like middle school so so often. My wife says I act like I'm in middle school still, but that's a different thing. The reason why things just don't seem the way they should be, and we approach God not by seeing and touching him, but the only way we can have a connection with God right now is having faith in an unseen God. Well, the reason is the fall. After Genesis 2 is... Genesis 3, boom, we're counting. Congregation's alive today. This is what Genesis 3 says. God warned that on the day that you eat of the tree in the midst of the garden, you will surely die. Now, of course, the enemy came and started lying and saying, you will not surely die. And technically, there was some truth to his lie. That's an enemy in your life will always hinge on a truth to tell you a lie. Now, technically, we, we wouldn't die if we ate of the fruit of the forbidden tree, die in the way we think of dying, but definitely we would die just like God warned. It's just not the type of death that we would tend to expect. Surely on the day that you eat of the fruit of this tree, you will die. And before the taking of the fruit, sin entered the world through doubting the goodness of God in his prohibition, in his warning, in his provision of everything else but the forbidden fruit and the lies of the enemy. And we started to think, well, maybe God, maybe God's holding out on us what what we perceive to be restrictions, maybe they're not like he says, protections. Maybe God isn't good. And we agreed with the enemy, and we rebelled and took and ate. And from that moment, sin has spread in the world like a virus. It's the death that God promised. Maybe not the death we expected, because 
our flesh and our soul are in the midst of death and decay. In what verse 21 of Romans 8 here calls, in bondage to corruption leading to death. And our spirits, though, are dead. We are dead in our spirits. So we don't cry out, Abba, Father, because we, we, we just don't know to do that. We're, we, we, God is no longer our relational connection. We have cut that tie. 1 John 1 or 1 John 3 calls us children of the devil. Now, that's, that's our angst and our calling and our anxieties. Our, our MO, our modus operandi, is we cry out with hopelessness and mistrust and doubt. We were created to have a connection and a freedom, but we were born of a seed of sin. Verse 14 says this, for all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. But it stands to reason that the opposite is also true. All who are not led by the Spirit, which is how we're all born, are not sons and daughters of God. We're under a curse of relational separation from God. Verse 15, we can read that in the opposite too. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. This is talking about the gospel. Well, it stands to reason that when we're born, we're born into a type of corruption that is exactly that. Slavery, bondage, and fear. The sons of Adam and Eve were dead spiritually. And I believe that the moment that we sinned against God, the Spirit of God departed from the hearts of man. That we're dead on, in our hearts, and our souls and our bodies are in bondage to corruption. And fear takes the spot of that empty place. How many of you all know when you go into an empty place that's so empty there's no light in there? What fills you? Well, fear tends to fill you. And the same thing when, when, we, when we excommunicate God from our hearts by sin, and sin fills us, we are full of fear. We are falling back from creation. We fall into slavery in a bondage of fear. Now, this is the curse that, that uh, God proclaimed in, in chapter 3 of Genesis when Adam and Eve sinned against him. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Now, the pain of childbirth is also mentioned in Romans 8. It says, in pain you shall bring forth children. And then it says, your desire shall be for your husband, for he shall rule over you. Again, this is not how we were created to be. We were created to be in harmony, in symbiotic relationship. My strength is your strength. Your weakness and my weakness, we, we grow together and ask for God's help. And none of my strength, it's, no, it's never meant to be my strength versus your strength. Until we were under the curse of our rebellion. And we said, no, I'll take what's mine first. Well, what, is, what do other people on the planet do? When we're led by fear, everyone's saying, my will, not your will. Everyone protecting themselves, looking out firstly for themselves, 
then our desire will be to rule over the next person. And so you have this, really since the beginning of time, there's been an essence of feminism. Why? Well, because men aren't protecting women. And women feel the need to protect themselves. Now, there's a better ism than man-ism or woman-ism. It's God protecting us, but that's not how we're born. We're born trying to look out for ourselves first and foremost, a spirit of enmity. Now, here's the curse that God pronounces over Adam. He says, you shall not eat of the... uh, of the tree of life anymore. And it says, he says, cursed is the ground because of you in pain. You shall eat of it all the days of your life, eat of the ground, thorns and thistles. It shall bring forth to you. And he goes on. This is known as the curse of futility. We do work. We try to, to earn money for ourselves, but it's in essence futile. Go back to Romans eight. Paul mentions this very thing. Verse 20, for creation was subjected to futility. This is speaking of the fall. We're created to to be provided for and, and intimately connected with our Father. But when we rejected him, it says creation was subjected to futility by God. Futility means not simply that we fail, but we almost succeed. We almost provide for ourselves. We're confused about what the goal is. We suffer economic inequity and so much of it driven by just grave injustice in the world. And most of us, no matter how much we have, money or whatever, we tend to worry about provision. Where's the next paycheck going to come from? We tend to struggle with balancing our budget. And I don't believe that this is technically comes primarily from just not knowing how to do things. There's part of it that's that, and we need to learn. Come to financial freedom class this fall. But so much of this is just the curse of futility. The world just isn't as it should be. Subjected to futility by God. It's the death, in essence, that he promised, even if it's not that which we expected. It's a judgment for rejecting him. John Piper says this as he preaches about verse 20, he says, this is a judicial decree from God. It's not a natural development of material consequence. Meaning this isn't just some random way that it was designed to play out. Now he goes on to say all natural evil in the world. Now he's talking about hurricanes and, and all sorts of evil in the world, that sort of evil. Even that is a statement about the moral evil in the world. I don't believe that the world was made to just be totally messed up and uninhabitable in some ways and cruel in some ways. And I'm not just talking about humanity, but all creation, climatology even. So in essence here, at least we have a theological explanation for, for why climate change, in, in, for instance, is in one way man-made. Because all, all of the futility in the world and the, and the the problems of climate and the problems of humanity and the problems of why I can't trust my friends or my fathers or my mothers, it comes from a spirit of bondage to corruption. When billions of billions of people look out for themselves firstly, 
that's where the earth itself is shaken. When we say, it's my way, it's, it's my will, and I can't trust others who want to do their will, I have to mistrust and I have to compete to get ahead. And my will be done no matter what happens to the earth, no matter what happens to other people. Like our passage mentions, there is a sad groan within creation. It's a groan that you can hear that we grow up maybe tuning our ears to, not maybe knowing there's anything else. Last week, my family and I were going out to the conference. We were planning on driving right straight to Orlando from here, and our plans got changed because of Hurricane Barry. And so instead of driving right through Baton Rouge, which was just under a deluge and flooding, we decided to kind of reroute our trip up north. So we went kind of took the 20 across. And what we found is we were able to stay safely in Montgomery, Alabama one night. And what ended up happening with an extra day in Montgomery that we didn't expect is that we kind of went on this impromptu civil rights tour that we took our young kids to different museums and to Selma, Alabama. And we learned a lot of things that were difficult to process. Now, without a doubt, we we got to hear some inspiring stories of bravery, of civil rights activists and unique virtue that was uh, a light in a dark place, but so much of what we saw, frankly, was horrifying. A lot of what's been happening in our nation and on our planet was difficult to process. And I, looking back on it, I think a little bit of that pain and horror is a necessary ingredient for the growth of any child, myself included. And it was a, a weightiness that we went to the conference with. We go to the conference the next day, and there's so much happiness and celebration in 25 years. And the, the first few days, I, I felt just kind of at odds. Like, I'm, I'm still grieving and groaning and trying to process the pain of what we had witnessed. And kind of just like, man, this is kind of hard to, to celebrate one thing. But then now I'm celebrating the, a good redemptive thing. And I was processing both of these things when I went on Wednesday or on Tuesday, Wednesday to a seminar about a bunch of different pastors on what it takes to see God move in a multi-ethnic way in a local church. And a lot of these different pastors had a lot of great things to say, but what stood out to me most and what, what I think God kind of used to tie the, the bitterness and the sweetness that I was experiencing juxtaposed in my week what God used to tie into my, my grieving and my joy of the conference was what Pastor Dehan Lee said from our Every Nation Church in Los Angeles. Dehan Lee grew up in uh, a church in the United States that was an immigrant church from Korea. His church, he said, was a, he says, we were the most homogenous church, 95, 96% Korean. So probably more homogenous church than any white church, black church, brown church that you may have grown up in. And he says, when I came to be a part of this movement that was reaching nations that were yet unreached, and God called me to lead a church like mine that's as diverse as mine is in Los Angeles, he says, the number one thing when asked about how to sustain what God was doing in his church, he said one word. He said, lament. 
if we can rejoice with those who rejoice in the kingdom of God, we have to be willing to grieve with those who grieve. He said that you can learn a lot of things about what to say and do and, and you know, how to be active in communities, but if you can't lament, you're missing the heart of God. It impacted me greatly. Now, I have to warn you, when you look out on the earth and you see things that are lamentable, if you lament the sins of others, but you can't appropriately lament your own sins, something's missing. If you tend to look at things that disgust you, but categorically disassociate your own sins from that which disgusts you, then your lamenting is something other than godly lamenting. We should look at the greatest villains of today's culture, whoever you consider to be a villain, and say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. And if we can't appropriately lament our sin, then something's missing in redemption. So that's the third point. So it's creation, fall, the lamentableness of the fall, the rejection of God and all its consequences, but then redemption. So listen, in creation, God breathed his spirit into us. In the fall, I believe his spirit departed from our hearts. But then Jesus came into a fallen world and he was born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit, did not have the seeds of sin that we had. He was full of the Holy Spirit like Adam, except he was a greater Adam. He was not to be emptied of his spirit in the way Adam was, but in a different way. See, Jesus lived the life that we should have lived, but then he chose to go to the cross and die the death that we should have died in our place. And he hung on the cross like so many thousands of thousands of people in the Roman world. He hung on the cross, but not for his own sins, but for ours. And when he hung his last breath, he, he said, it is finished, meaning all that would be required to reconnect us to the heart of the Father, to be able to say, Abba, Father, with substance, and reciprocation, and connection, all that would be required to, be res- to restore the Daddy, Abba, Father, he said, it is finished. And then it says, he gave up his spirit. He breathed his last. He gave up his spirit. And so he was put into the grave after giving up his spirit. But three days later, the only thing that was empty was the tomb. Because Jesus was risen from the dead, and he was full again of the Holy Spirit, and he began to go around filling others with the Spirit of God. He went up to to empty, dead sinners, dead in our sin, void of the Holy Spirit, and he said, receive my Spirit. And for 40 days, he appeared to 500 different people who were willing to testify to seeing the risen Christ. And he ascended into heaven. He said, before that, he said, it's good that I go. It's good that I go because God will send the helper to you. And he ascended into heaven. The Holy Spirit came and filled creation. And this is what's great about redemption. I believe redemption is a a step beyond creation. We're created to be filled like Adam and Eve. 
with God's presence, the breath of life in us. But the spirit of adoption as sons is, is even greater than that because we have restored creation and the glory of redemption in Jesus, the, the spirit of adoption that cries, Abba, Father, is in us through faith if we believe in Jesus. He fills dead sinners with his glory, and it's the glory of his creation and his mercy through redemption. Now check out verse 15. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but now you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So anything in your, in your, in your mind or your will or your emotions that is tending, seems to be tending towards decay, with your redeemed heart, you have the authority to cry out, Abba, Father. If your finances seem to be in decay, you can cry out to Daddy. If your relational connections around you just don't seem to be right, you can cry out to daddy. Everything that we have is restored by Jesus. Your cries are no longer hopeless. Verse 16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. How do you know that you know? Basic Christian Christian epistemology. How do you know that you know? How do you know that you know God and that you're truly a child of God? How do you know that the Bible is true? Even beyond what we're going to share on Wednesday night, which is helpful stuff for our minds, even beyond that, beneath that, how do you know that the Bible is true? How do you know who God is? This is not primarily a rational question, but spiritual and paternal. How does a child know who his or her mother is? Is it by doing a DNA test? No, it's this is the voice that has nurtured me. This is the one from whom I've suckled and I've grown and has fed me and has has affirmed me. You don't just learn who you are as a child of God. You're given a renewed spirit. He makes a dead person alive, and he gives you a spirit that can cry out for the Father. Before we planted our church, years ago we were part of Mosaic. And years years before that, the early years of Mosaic, we had a worship leader back when a lot of y'all were babies who moved to Houston, and he wrote a great song that's been helpful to me. I know who I am. You don't recognize this song? I know who I am. You don't know this song? I know who I am. I am yours. Come on. This is a congregation, right? I am yours and you are mine. Jesus, you are mine. Yes. I love to see because look, our identity is connected to our paternity. Because of the Spirit of God, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, I don't have to wonder about who I am and try to confuse my identity by the lies of the enemy or the pressures of the culture to provide for myself or my career identity. My identity is not who I am, but it's whose I am based on a price that he paid. And every devil in hell that tries to lie to me in my life about who I am, I can cry out and curse that devil and say, maybe a lot of the things about my weakness are true, devil, but I belong to Jesus Christ. What else matters? 
What else matters? I know who I am. From now on, the awkwardness of middle school that tries to creep up on me when I feel insecure in my home, in my work, when I am overly pitying myself, God tells me, you are mine. And a spirit inside me that God has placed in there says, Abba, Father, and it drowns out every insecurity in my life. Watch us conquer from that place. I know whose I am. Creation, fall, redemption, and now restoration. Now, Lord, help me to be quick about restoration, but just warning you, some of the richest parts in pretty much the whole passage that we've read, it's all about restoration. All about restoration. Verse 17. If we're children, then we are heirs. Think about this. This should blow our minds. Why don't you go meditate on this for a few years every day? Heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. Did you know that everything that belongs to Christ belongs to you? So our nation burns to the ground. nothing. I still own everything. I've lost comparatively nothing. You have the mind of Christ, Philippians says. You will inherit the earth. This is the meek will inherit the earth. Jesus is meek. I'm, I'm made like Jesus. The earth's mine then. That's little mathematics I just did in my head. Everything that belongs to him is now mine. So why would I worry about lesser things? Verse 21, the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Y'all, freedom, glory, joy, power, conquest, peace, cheese, romance, everything that's good is mine. We grow in his goodness. But how? What is the mechanism by which God restores us to his glory? Once we're saved, once we know Jesus, we, we place our faith in him. Okay? It turns out that most of us, when we place our faith in Jesus, we don't die immediately after that. So there's this period in between believing and dying. What's all that for? Restoration. Well, how does that work? Thank you for asking what is the mechanism by which we see restoration when we're redeemed, when we're children of God? How do we grow in being children? Thank you, verse 17 says. Heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Turn to your neighbor and say, suffering is the mechanism. Suffering is the mechanism. Now, I have to be care- we need to be careful when it says, provided that we suffer with him, that does not mean that if we suffer with him, then we might have a chance to become heirs. No, this is meaning that the, the sonship is already provided, and with that is provided the suffering. It means that we are heirs, and now we inherit everything that Jesus is. And every way that Jesus went to grow in that on his road to glory. 
It's saying we are his children. So understand that we are going to suffer like him. In other words, this sort of suffering, this sort of groaning, it's not a prerequisite to become a child of God. It's a fruit of sonship. It's a fruit of the spirit of adoption. It's a mechanism that brings us into the full status and full glory of being his kids. So your suffering is no longer random. (laughs) Many of y'all, sometimes if you're like me, you can approach God and say, God, help me with my suffering. And we think he clearly thinks that our need is what he thinks our need is. So helping me with my suffering is going to mean take it away now, right? And often what he does is says, okay, I'm going to help you with your suffering. I'm going to show you that it's with purpose. (laughs) To help you with your suffering, I'm not going to lighten the load on your back. I'm going to strengthen your back. I'm not going to just, I'm not just going to take it away I'm going to give you a greater glory than if it had never been there in the first place. I'm going to show you that your suffering is not disconnected globally from the Christians around the world. It's not disconnected chronologically from 2,000 years of sanctified sufferers. He's going to connect our suffering to the spirit of adoption that cries out for our Father and hears his response. Our suffering is no longer vain or meaningless, but progressively glorious. Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In fact, his suffering directly leads to greater restoration of glory and sonship. Our last verse says this, and not only the creation groans, but we ourselves, even though we're saved already, we ourselves groan, even though we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. See, we have the first fruits of His sufferings because He took the first fruits of our sin, He took it all. Paul has just gone from saying that creation itself groans with eager expectation for the revealing of the sons of God. You know what? Every protest in the street, every moment of anger, whether people know it or not, it's a groaning for the sons and daughters of God to be more than just our political delineations and to stop groaning in the ways of the world and start groaning as sons and daughters of God so that our groaning would no longer be death groaning, but birthing groaning. I want to ask you, as you judge yourself for a minute so that we can, when we go to God in communion, it's with some specific things when we respond to the word of God. We have the sanctified ability to judge our own disposition and trade it for God's. When you look at the world and you are grieved or groaning, is your grieving a grieving of death 
or a grieving, birthing life? Is it the type of lamenting that is aligned with the heart of God or aligned with the heart of someone else? Let me be honest with you. I feel like in the last several decades, I have been constantly called to repentance in this area where I look at the sins of the world and I read the news and I become more like death groans, not birthing life groans, not, oh, this is terrible, but this is an opportunity for God. Not enough faith is in my grieving. In fact, so often when I read the news too much, spending an hour with me is is like spending an hour watching Fox News or MSNBC or what, just any sort of cable news that's more cynical and negative than any sort of hope. That's what it's like spending time with me. And don't amen too loudly if you know me because it could still hurt my feelings, but it's true. And God's calling me to repentance and saying, son, if you would just align with my grieving, you'll do better to align with my restoration. And so I'm asking you, what kind of groaning tends to pervade from your disposition? Can you trade that for his disposition? There's an opportunity today. Jesus' groans were birth pains. The night before he went to the cross, before the greatest moment of suffering and the ugliest point of history, which led to be the greatest moment of redemption, he cried out, Abba, Father, in a special way. You know that this word Abba is only used three times in the whole Bible. And only once in the gospel is this word Daddy, Abba, written down. It's right before he went to the cross. It's here in Mark 14. And going a little further in the Garden of Gethsemane, he fell to the ground and prayed, if it were possible that the hour might pass from him, that there, maybe there'd be some other way. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Meaning, don't let me suffer this. If there's any other way. Yet, not my will, but what you will. See, he died for people like us that were born being controlled by futility, by bondage of corruption, by saying, my will, not thine. In Jesus, he said, no, he said, not my will, but thine be done. See, he used his free will. He was a perfect being. His free will still rejected his own will. This is crazy to think about. He had no bondage of corruption in him, and yet he said, in all of his freedom, not mine, but yours. There's something greater in the glory to be revealed than just what my flesh wants right now. And he died for us who don't necessarily have what the Bible calls free will. We are in bondage to corruption. And he said, I will take my freedom and trade it so that they can be free. And that's what he did as he went to the cross. In creation, God made us for glory as his sons. In the fall, we squandered the glory in fear and futility. In redemption, Jesus traded our earned futility for his earned life as a son, transferred to us by resurrection, by sacrifice and by resurrection. And in restoration, he leads us to inherit all the glory that he's purchased for us. 
He goes before us in all things. Jesus is the first fruits of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. I want to end with this verse. It's one of my favorites. It's very, very rich. Romans 1. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the first fruits from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Would you stand to your feet with me?